Hello, my name is Melissa Hoffman, Public Health Associate at the Medical Society of the State of New York, and I am joined today by Dr. William Valenti. Dr. Valenti is an infectious diseases specialist and chair of NISNI's Infectious Diseases Committee. We will be discussing the novel coronavirus that originated in Wuhan, China, and was first diagnosed as a coronavirus on January 7, 2020. My first question is, what is coronavirus? Coronavirus is a member of a large family of respiratory viruses that we've known about for a long time. The novel coronavirus that appeared in 2019 is a member of the family that resembles the SARS and MERS viruses. But it's a new virus in terms of our having any experience with it. On December 31st, Chinese health authorities reported on a cluster of coronavirus-related pneumonias and respiratory infections that started in Wuhan, China. And typical of the virus family and of SARS and MERS, it appears that this is an animal virus that then adapted itself to humans. So that, again, a relatively new strain of virus related to the SARS virus. In fact, some people call it SARS-2. But we, I think for the purposes of this discussion, we'll refer to it as either the COVID virus or COVID virus disease for ease of discussion. My next question is, how is novel coronavirus spread? Can I catch it? The experts, people who know about coronaviruses, say that it's likely that it originated in animal species, then spread to humans. And the animals that are thought to be reservoirs for this are bats, civets, an opossum-like animal, and pangolins. This also begins to touch on food sources for some people. These animals are not only a source of food, but are used in traditional Chinese medicine and are thought to have some kind of healing power as well. So you can see the close contact that people have with these animals. The central point or focal point for this was a market of China where animals and food and people are in close proximity to each other. So you can see how infection might take place. And there is person-to-person -person spread of this COVID virus, which we've seen originating again in China, but really has spread over a number of countries. So that there's a total of about 110,000 cases as of this date. The thinking is that the major way of spreading this virus from person to person is through droplets, similar to the SARS and MERS virus, and in fact, similar to influenza. So there has been person to person spread, yes. What happens is people get virus particles from droplets on their hands, and if you touch the mucous membranes of your eyes, your nose, or your mouth, that sets up infection. If you've seen pictures of the coronavirus, it has these spikes on it that are the protein parts of the virus that attach to human tissue. It lives on skin and droplets, but then sets up infection when you touch your nose, mouth, the mucous membranes of the eye, sets up infection that way.
Thank you. What are the symptoms to look for in COVID-19? Most common symptom is fever. Other symptoms, cough, sore throat, shortness of breath, and a number of people at some point in their illness have had some GI distress, either nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea. And in fact, virus has been found not only in saliva and respiratory secretions, but also in feces. Thank you. How long will it take for symptoms to present? The thinking right now is the incubation period is up to about 14 days. The tricky part there is there's good evidence to suggest that virus is shed and people are contagious to other people during the incubation period when they're asymptomatic. And how quickly can somebody know that they've been exposed? We've seen all over the news all of the cruise ships and the advisory from the State Department to avoid taking a cruise. If somebody doesn't know they're exposed, doesn't know that they're going to be spreading it, and has contact with a larger than usual number of people, how is the spread going to stop if somebody is asymptomatic and they have actually contracted it? Here are a couple things we know. One study from Chinese health authorities in about 80,000 patients suggested that about 80% of people who have COVID disease actually have mild disease, do not get pneumonia, are not severely ill, and the disease runs its course and you're done. One of the problems that we've had with this is the limitations on testing, that we really haven't done enough testing in the United States to track this and answer some of those trickier questions. So again, we're working with this 14-day incubation period where when they become symptomatic, we'll develop fever, respiratory illness, cough, etc. within 14 days after exposure. The problem, though, as I said earlier, is that some people shed virus during the asymptomatic phase so that if you've had contact with someone like that, it's a little bit unpredictable in terms of knowing that you were exposed and watching for infection. That's one of the big gaps in our understanding here, especially with the lack of widespread COVID testing. What should healthcare providers and health departments do? First of all, be on the alert. There are a number of agencies and organizations that are tracking this and counting the numbers of infections, and that is positive tests. The best advice is to, first of all, get ready, number one, for healthcare providers, begin screening patients based on symptoms of respiratory illness, fever, cough, shortness of breath, and also a travel history may be important. And that was important in the beginning in terms of have you traveled to the, what I call our hotspots, China, South Korea, Italy, Iran, Japan. Now that we've seen disease in all of these other countries and in the United States, the travel history gets a little more complicated. But I think at this point, it's still worth asking, have you traveled outside the area? And do you have any fever, shortness of breath, cough, flu-like symptoms. And since we're talking about flu, this is still late in the season, but it's not too late in the season because we're still seeing influenza A and influenza B. And I continue 
to recommend flu vaccine for my patients who have not been vaccinated. Now, there isn't any vaccine or specific treatment, though, for COVID virus. The CDC has these clinical criteria or a definition of people that we should be investigating. And again, it's based on what we know about MERS and SARS, but it's also subject to change as new information becomes available. So I'd still settle on travel history and symptoms. Do you have any symptoms of cough, cold, fever, respiratory illness, and have you traveled? Thank you. Will you please describe the differences between isolation and quarantine, as well as containment and mitigation? Quarantine is the separation of healthy people who may have been exposed to an infectious disease and keeping them away from other people and observing people in quarantine to see if they get sick or get the infection. Isolation is the separation of sick people from others to try and contain infection. Then there's containment versus mitigation. Containment is what was happening early on in China. Remember, there were road closures, restriction of movement in large cities, building new hospitals. Again, efforts to try and stop the spread of virus. Now, people tried, but you can see that It didn't work very well because we've seen spread to all of these other countries. So what happens at that point after there's all this spread and you're still trying to manage this epidemic is the mitigation phase. And the mitigation phase is more of a community level activity or activities that, again, try to stop the spread of virus. That's social distancing school cancellations, cancellation of large events, staying out of crowds. There's been a recent recommendation for older people or people with underlying illness not to travel on cruise ships, limitations on travel and restrictions on travel, as well as working from home, telecommuting. And another thing that healthcare people should be thinking about is if the epidemic continues and we start to see continued spread, it may impact our ability to deliver service to patients. And one of the things that we've been looking at and have started to do is started to offer telehealth visits to our patients so they don't have to come to the office. We don't want sick patients coming to the office, but we might be able to do as much for them and at least begin the evaluation process through telehealth. And our electronic health record has a telehealth platform as a part of it. So there are a lot of strategies that are part of the mitigation phase that are still viable and still important in terms of stopping the spread of virus. Dr. Valenti, can you talk a little bit more about testing for COVID-19? We're scaling up testing as most people know, the testing in the United States has been kind of limited, and there have been some other technical issues that have limited testing, but it's starting to roll out not only at CDC, but in public health labs, and our Wadsworth Center lab in the New York State Health Department is gearing up for testing, and there's also an effort to make it available through 
regional laboratories, university and hospital laboratories, as well as the large commercial lab. So we're beginning to ramp up testing. There's some good news along with that. And part of the New York State response is to remove barriers to testing so that there are no co-pays to testing. It's covered by private insurance and Medicaid. And also there's more opportunity for physicians and providers to order the test based on their own clinical judgment. So I encourage people to access testing, begin to get some experience with how do you order the test. There are billing codes that have been developed for this through the CMS Centers for Medicare, Medicaid Services at the federal level. Finances and co-pays and that sort of thing should not be a barrier to accessing testing. The system still needs some refinement in terms of actually finding the lab that does it and ordering it, but it's getting better. So think about how you're going to order testing when you're faced with a patient with a compatible illness and or travel history. Thank you again. And as far as the compatible illness, how soon should people that haven't traveled, haven't necessarily been exposed, when should people be more concerned about that if they start exhibiting the symptoms? That's called community spread, where people have not had a travel history to one of the high-intensity areas, but in fact, there's spread happening on the local level, person-to-person spread happening on the local level. So if somebody has a compatible clinical illness, fever, cough, sore throat, respiratory illness, shortness of breath, and I'd also do a rapid flu test as a part of the evaluation process. So if somebody has a compatible illness, is negative on the rapid flu test, I'd order the COVID virus test. Now, at least in some parts of the U.S., for example, Washington State, people are making the diagnosis based on clinical illness and ruling out influenza. And that's only because there are large numbers of cases and there's still some testing capacity limitations. In New York State, while the number of cases is growing, I think there's still an opportunity to access testing. And the reason I'm still in favor of testing whenever possible is that it just gives you an idea of what it is you're dealing with. And I think it's always better to have information than not. And of course, that may change if testing labs get overwhelmed or the number of cases increases significantly. But I think we're still in a position where we should try to access testing to get our feet on the ground and get information. Current estimates put the mortality rate of COVID-19 between 2 and 3%. Do you think that that's an accurate number, or do you think that it's too soon to know? Well, the 2 3% mortality rate has held since we've been keeping statistics on this since late December, early January. That may be a little bit less when you consider the large number of people who are asymptomatic and may not come to medical attention. But for those people with severe enough illness to be tested, the mortality rate is in the 2 to 3% range. But there's another piece of information that want to bring out here, and that is 
as age increases, the mortality rate increases. And this is from about, again, this 70 to 80,000 people who were surveyed by Chinese health authorities. So these were people who were actually sick, and the mortality rate was higher in older people and people with underlying conditions. So I think we need to be mindful of that, that this is still a serious problem and has serious health implications for older people or people with underlying heart and lung disease, for example. Is it true that young people don't need to be concerned about contracting this? I disagree with that, and here's why. While young people may have relatively mild illness, they can still shed virus and transmit it to other people, including older people with underlying conditions. So the same rules apply in terms of taking this seriously, restricting movement, avoiding crowds, washing your hands. We haven't talked about hand washing, but getting secretions and droplets off your hands is a very good way to avoid spreading this to other people. So young people also have an obligation to respond and be a part of this to avoid spreading virus to other people. What we're doing now in this mitigation phase is we're trying to stop virus transmission. Have there been any known cases of infants or children under the age of two contracting it? There have been two cases or so, very early cases of mothers who likely transmitted virus to newborn infants. But again, the cases that we know of skew toward 30 and older. Thank you, Dr. Valenti, for your insightful knowledge on the COVID-19 outbreak. And we appreciate your input. And thank you for listening. Be sure to check out all of Misney's other information on COVID-19 that's available on the website.